As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. And uh, we, we did a few weeks ago now an episode on egg freezing. Uh, which um, has had quite an interesting response. Lots of people have been sending kind of thoughts and feedback in. So thank you to everyone who did that. Um, We wanted to pick up on on one particular question from a listener called Paul. But before I get into that, just to remind you, if you want to get in touch with us about anything you've heard on the podcast, anything you disagree with, anything you think we needed to cover, um, please do. We're really interested in hearing feedback and comments from the listeners. So please email us, molad, M-O-L-A-D, at premier.org.uk, which is exactly what Paul did. And Paul um, says this, um, thanks for your episode. Uh, I didn't hear you mentioning what happens to the unused eggs. Maybe you referred listeners to another podcast, or maybe I missed it. If life begins at conception, how are we treating all of the eggs? Presently, due to limited success, many eggs are harvested, but few are used. We don't do a one-to-one usage policy, plus we have leftovers. And he goes on to say, this also does not seem to be much interest in birth control pills or apparatus, it seems we have inadequate ones, but no one's willing to put the money and research into a method that is closer to 100% and easy to use. I think the government should encourage such research if the culture is leaning towards starting sex in your teens for not having babies until the late 20s. We'll try to come on to the birth control half of that later on. But just on the, on the issue of, of unused eggs, I think Pete Paul is right that we probably skimmed over that. Um, we have done an episode many years ago about IVF, which goes into some detail, but we should probably think about the, the issue of kind of so-called surplus embryos in relation to egg freezing as well, shouldn't we? Because that is something a lot of Christians are quite concerned about. Yeah. Um, so just to clarify, we're talking about human eggs. It, it, uh, it talks, talking about egg freezing. You think, well, what's this got to do with anything? But yeah, so we're talking about human eggs and the advances in in vitro fertilization which means that it is possible to extract eggs from the human ovary and um, and store them. You have to inject them with, with some kind of um, antifreeze, apparently, um, so, so before they will survive freezing, so some kind of treatment, but it's, it's thought that that treatment is harmless. Um, and the eggs can then be stored almost indefinitely in liquid nitrogen. Um, but the question really was about frozen embryos. So these are, this is what happens in normal uh, conventional IVF. So in, in conventional IVF, in vitro fertilization, uh, the woman is given uh, injections to make her hyperovulate to produce a large number of eggs rather than a single egg at each monthly cycle and the eggs are quote harvested and then in the normal process what happens is the eggs are then fertilized with the partner's sperm and uh, the aim is to try to create as many embryos as possible um And the embryos are then allowed to develop over a short period. They're examined under the microscope. And the ones that are of the, quote, highest quality, uh, which seem to be developing normally, are then um, selected. And one, two, or occasionally three are re-implanted. 
into the woman's womb and the remainder are then uh, usually frozen. And uh, this, uh, it, with the idea being that they can be then at a future date thawed out and used in subsequent IVF cycles. And this certainly raises all kinds of ethical dilemmas and, and problems. Um, and, you know, a moment's thought can sort of indicate the sort of things that can go wrong. Um, it's perfectly possible for the relationship between the uh, the the male and the female, I'm, I'm not saying husband and wife, many of them are not married, um, to to break down. And then the question is, well, who to whom do these embryos belong? Hmm. And, and and what happens? Who makes the decision as to whether or not they're re-implanted? Um, so that's one example where it can all go horribly wrong. And there's a ticking clock, as I understand as well, isn't it, in that you can't keep embryos on ice indefinitely, but there is a certain point in which you have to basically decide, are we going to re-implant or, or we have to allow them to be, quote-unquote, discarded? Well, again, this is interesting because technically my understanding is that it is possible technically to keep the embryos in liquid nitrogen almost indefinitely. And there have been cases where embryos have been successfully rethawed decades later, but the time limit was imposed really for um, regulatory and ethical reasons. Um, because I think the authorities were concerned that they might end up with freezer fulls of, of eggs um, being kept indefinitely. And then with, with all kinds of difficult questions about what happens, you know, what happens if the person becomes ill who donated them or, you know, what should we do with them or if they die or, or so on. And so uh, in, initially, I think it was a five-year time period was put in. Uh, and then there was, a, there were then uh, a great agonies about the fact that people were the clock was ticking and they didn't know what to do and they didn't have time to have another cycle and so the government then extended it and I think it's true to say that in different countries there are different rules about how long uh, the eggs can be frozen but but the reason for imposing a deadline is not for technical reasons so much as mm. for ethical and and personal regulatory reasons and I guess the reason this causes, on top of the issues that you raised about, you know, the challenge of effectively starting a life and then placing it on pause for upwards of 10 years, you know, in terms of what has happened in that time span and, and all that thing. But there's additional ethical concerns for a lot of Christians, which is that when you harvest the eggs in the first place, you're often harvesting dozens. Is that right? Um, yes. and, and so you then um, fertilize all of them. And then you you pick out the best or the most viable looking two or three for implantation. Um, and then you might have 25 left over. And um, even if you did come back for to, to do several more rounds, even if IVF was successful and you did or, you know, several more rounds, you're never going to implant 30 eggs. And so built into the very process of IVF, as it's normally done, is the idea that there will be we will fertilize and create more embryos then we will ever seek to bring to kind of full to, to birth. Um, and in the end, some of them will be destroyed. And if you are a Christian who believes that life begins at conception, then that is effectively creating new human beings, knowing that a proportion of them will end up being killed. Yes. I mean, you've, you've sort of outlined a fairly extreme case because you never know how many eggs are going to be produced and in particular you never know how many viable embryos so it could be that you only end up with four five six uh, but it certainly could be that you end that, I mean I mean basically the clinics try to create as many embryos as possible because it increases the chances mm. of a successful outcome so it's just important to remember that quite apart from all the emotional and the and the genuine suffering created by infertility and the desire to have children and so on uh all the IVF clinics pretty well, the vast majority in um, are, are commercial entities. They, um, they're they doing this um, 
as a commercial process. And obviously, it's a very competitive field. They're trying to maximize what they call their take-home baby rate. And, uh, the, and therefore, anything that will increase the take-home baby rate is seen as a commercial advantage. Hmm. So um, there are these pressures on parents to try. And obviously, they, you know, so when it's put to them, well, of course, you want the best possible chance of having a child. And the best possible chance of having a child is to go through this procedure. Uh, but it, it is not necessary to um, to create all those multiple embryos. So it's perfectly possible, even if you've had hyperovulation, uh, only to create uh, two embryos hmm. and not use the remaining eggs. And this is sometimes and, described as kind of ethical IVF. In, and yes, often well, Christians who, who have concerns about, you know, if they believe that life is exception, that's often the, the way they kind of thread the needle is is to still use the fertility treatment of IVF, but but solving the problem, as it were, of, of having to dispose of, of embryos at the end of it. Yes, that's right. I mean, this is one option. There are, there are a number of other options. Um, so this is one option where you do go through the whole IVF procedure, but you only deliberately create um, the number of embryos that you're going to uh, implant. You don't check them for quality quotes. You simply re-implant the two that have been created. Mm. Um, Another option is what's called natural cycle IVF, which is where you don't use the hyperstimulation. You simply allow the normal cycle. So one egg is created in the normal cycle. That one egg is harvested by ultrasound and that one egg is fertilized in the lab and then re-implanted. So Mm -hmm. that's even closer to uh, the normal process, uh, not using hyperovulation. Though, of course, as you as you said, I imagine I haven't looked at the stats, but I imagine the success rates of natural cycle IVF are even lower than the success rates, which are already not amazing for for ordinary IVF, because, yeah, just naturally you're, you're not able to kind of pick and choose the best. And even even in couples who don't experience infertility, you know, a certain proportion of all eggs will kind of be non-viable. And that's why couples that's can right. often take six to 12 months, even if there is nothing kind of biologically out of order it can just take a long time to conceive because there are kind of natural you know not every not every month is is a reasonable possibility of conceiving no that's right and in fact that's one of the mysterious things about human fertilization human uh, reproduction in in that a significant number of eggs that are created in the normal monthly cycle have major genetic abnormalities uh some of them have you know instead of the normal Uh, 23 chromosomes some of them might have 46 or even 92 chromosomes and i mean there's some major abnormality and and there's really no possibility even if fertilized that that egg can lead to the development of a child so um and and therefore a significant number of the miscarriages that occur occur because of genetic abnormalities of just the normal process and precisely why so many um, eggs do have these very marked genetic abnormalities is is simply not known. It seems to be a feature, uh, interestingly, particularly of human. So is that not the case of of other mammals? They are they're much more reliable conceivers. I understand that is true. That that um, there's a higher instance of abnormal eggs in humans than in many other mammals. Hmm. Um, so. Um, Another possibility is uh, to harvest the egg, but not to fertilize in the lab, but actually to fertilize in the vagina to to insert or into the, in the womb. You can insert the egg and the sperm into the womb. So then there isn't any choice or selection. This is in a way uh, just... Uh, well, how would that be for the treatment? How would that just differ to having sex in the normal way? Well, interestingly, it's more likely to work, um, uh, particularly because it can be inserted directly into the womb. Oh, I see. Uh, so you're not relying on the sperm so making it all the way on, to the ovaries. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Wow. I didn't know so, that. So, um, 
and so there and are a number of vari- variables, the variations. Does does the fact of you know we mentioned that lots of Christians, I imagine lots of people listening will 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 be convinced or will believe that life begins at conception. Um, does the fact that so many um, eggs produced in the kind of natural way by healthy women are non-viable does that give you any pause in throwing your weight behind that kind of understanding of how life begins i mean is it really god's plan that you know as part of the natural process of reproduction you know potentially 50 percent of all human beings who've ever existed died before they were a few days old well that is certainly an argument which is frequently used by those who wish to challenge or even ridicule um, a, a very quotes conservative position on on um, embryos. You know, they say, "Are you really telling me that you know the new creation, the heaven, is going to be populated by vast numbers of um, of, of three and four day embryos, all of them unique human beings made in God's image?" You know, so and I I I want to draw back and say, actually the Bible itself describes the whole process of human reproduction as a deep mystery. There's a verse that says, as you cannot understand the way that the spirit enters the being in the womb, so you cannot understand the ways of God. You know, in other words, human reproduction is used as one of the ultimate mysteries of existence. Who are we to think we're going to be able to unpick it all? And I actually over the years have taken a slightly more nuanced position because I I want to argue that the human embryo is uh, is to use a Latin phrase sui generis it is of its own it is neither a tiny little unborn baby nor is it a blob of jelly a, uh, you know a, a cell like any other cell it is it is something that is unique it is um it is a human person who is on the way to becoming um born um and and the bible often has this tension between the already and the not yet it is already something but it is not yet what it is going to be uh, but I would also want to make the point that actually that's true of us too. You know, we're also trapped between the already and the not yet. Hmm. We're already something. We're already a person made in God's image, but we are not yet what God has in store for us and what his plans and purposes are hmm. for our future. So so we're all on a journey and the human embryo is right at the very uh, early part of the journey. And the reason I don't like this description, when does life begin, uh, be- is because it implies that it's a biological scientific question. You know, surely we know when life begins. Life begins here, bang. Well, I don't think life does begin, to be strictly pedantic. I don't think human life does begin at fertilization because we know that the egg is living and we know that the sperm is living and we know that it's human. Uh, so why are they alive well they're alive because they came out of the body of a living human person and when does that why is that person alive well they're because they came from a living human egg and a living human sperm so why were they alive so actually when does human life begin answer it begins when the human race when homo sapiens uh starts or but uh, even that is a blurry line if you buy into evolution isn't it because the distinction between the first homo sapiens and the predecessor was a minute fractional well again few few mutations and a few civic pieces of dna and and you know just to flag out that we have discussed that at length in a previous (laughs) we have scroll back maybe you should link to it as as we don't want to necessarily go off on that but in other words i want to reframe the question to say the, what, the question that really matters is when is there a person that we have a duty to protect? And when you put it in that f- terminology, you realise that it's not primarily a biological, scientific question. It's a philosophical, theological question. Even a social question. Uh, certainly. When, when um, do we see someone who's like us, who we as a community have a duty? Okay. Exactly. And that, But that seems to me that is the ultimate question. And my answer, which I do with all 
cautiousness and, and I don't want to say this is absolutely what the Bible teaches and so on. My answer is, however far I go back in my own personal history, even if I go all the way back to the fertilized egg, I can't find any point at which I say that is not me. That is not the same person. Um, because I can trace my continuity. God knew me and loved me and saw me and, and named me, according to the Bible, uh, when I was this minute speck in my mother's womb. And so I want to say that we never have the right intentionally to destroy um, an embryo because we can never be certain that there isn't a person there. Hmm. But if you ask me, is this... Uh, two-day embryo with irrecoverable massive genetic abnormalities who then dies was that a person i don't know and i don't think it's possible for a mere human being to know i don't think we have to uh we have we have to say that that was that was a person or not we simply it's beyond our knowledge it's it's above our pay grade hmm. so the practical position I've come to is that we should never do something which intentionally destroys embryos whilst remaining a kind of agnostic about what any one particular embryo, its significance. Mm. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, that seems very, very thoughtful and very wise. Um, I guess I imagine some people listening might be alarmed or concerned because I think I certainly grew up in a context where, you know, all the Christians I knew were instinctively anti-abortion. And that was often founded on the idea of life begins at conception. Cute, therefore, abortion is, di is no different to murder um, or any other form of infanticide if the child is outside of the womb because they're an equal human being with the same rights, dignity and status. Do you think the kind of, even the very sophisticated, if I may say so, kind of muddying of the waters that you've just laid out for us over the last five <laughs> oh, minutes, oh. do you think that weakens the case against abortion? And, and, and how would you respond to a Christian saying, well, hold on, if we all become agnostic about this in the way that you are, we've we've massively like undercut our ability to campaign if that's something you want to do against abortion? No, I, I don't. I don't accept that at all. I mean, uh, as you know, I've been very active about trying to limit abortion, trying to find alternatives, arguing against it in Parliament and so on. So I, I don't think that a nuanced perspective on... I'm talking about the first days of existence. I mean, the earliest at which an intentional abortion is carried out is six, eight weeks, uh, which is a completely different uh, a different stage. And the the... I've already said that you wouldn't intentionally, I don't think it's right to intentionally destroy an embryo of, of, of two or three days old. So it's clearly, mm. I don't think to say, oh, well, therefore you're 
you're weak on abortion. I think I think these are two totally different things. I I think abortion is to introduce death. It is to it is deliberately to destroy what is a a growing uh, unborn baby. Uh, in, incidentally, I I did a point I've made before, but I think it's a really interesting point. Is how it was about language, and that is the fascinating thing about this whole stuff about the of what's going on in the womb is there is no neutral language so you can either describe this being as a human embryo embryo is the noun human is the adjective and of course what the implications when you say a human embryo is you say well of course there are chimpanzee embryos and there are Mm. cat embryos and there are pigeon embryos and you know what there are fruit fly embryos and you look at them under the microscope and they all look exactly the same. So what's special about a human embryo? Why are you getting so excited about a human embryo? But you can turn the language around and you can say, you can talk about adult humans, uh, adolescent humans, humans, infant humans, unborn humans and embryonic humans. Hmm. And here what you're saying is, and guess what? They're all human beings. They're all of unique value and they're all at different stages of the human life form. So whether we talk about the human embryo or whether we talk about the embryonic human hmm. completely changes yeah. the moral status. And um, I want to talk about embryonic humans. I want to say this is a human being who is on the life trajectory mm-hmm. and the fact that superficially under the microscope, this being looks the same as a fruit fly embryo is completely irrelevant. This is an embryonic human. And it feels Uh, like when you take it out of the kind of heat and light of the human debate and talk about chimpanzees, as you said, would anyone dispute that to talk about an embryonic chimpanzee is an entirely kind of like non-loaded term, completely normal? I don't think any chimpanzee researcher would bat an eyelid if you discuss that. Oh yeah, that thing on the microscope, that's an embryonic chimpanzee. So it does feel like we're able to, to acknowledge and identify that that being, however early and primitive, is still a chimpanzee in a way that we find difficult with humans for obvious reasons. Yeah, but to, and to, to, I agree with that. But to come back to the question, uh, I want to pass back to you a something I was asked in a public debate by a secular philosopher, oh, and which I've, I've long thought about. <laughs> and he says... Um, Dr. Wyatt, there's a terrible fire in your hospital and uh, it's consuming both the fertility clinic and also the neonatal ward. And, and you know that in the fertility clinic, there are a thousand fertilized embryos all about to be destroyed. And, and in the neonatal ward, you've got 10 uh, newborn babies who are also about to destroy. Now, and you've got to make the choice, Dr. Wyatt, as to which human <laughs> lives you're going to save. Well, isn't it obvious, Dr. Wyatt, that you would save the embryos um, and, and and let the babies take their chances? <laughs> this is the kind of thought experiment uh, yeah. beloved by medical ethicists. It's a good one. I mean, we've talked in a previous podcast how we don't like trolley problems, as this is a version of, <laughs> it as is. it leads to kind of crude ethicizing. But let's engage with it on its own merits. Um, I would, I have to be honest, instinctively, and even on reflection, go and save the newborn babies and not their fertilized embryos. I think, why would I do that? <laughs> Apart from for the obvious reasons. I mean, an element of that, for right or for good or ill is that we are we are not good at recognizing the humanity of others that don't look like us and i don't i don't look like a baby but i've been around enough babies and i know that they grow and they end up looking a lot like me whereas an invisible you know eight cell size fertilized embryo in a test tube or something even if i intellectually in my head agree that that is a human being is more difficult uh, in to to act accordingly so i think a part of it is just simply you know we accord humanity to those things that look and resemble more like us for good or for ill that's not a terribly good reason isn't it i mean you no, could argue that i would agree you should, it's not a good you should reason. overcome these, i should these overcome that prejudices. i think there's something about i mean i i haven't reflected on this nearly as much as you have clearly but i think i am I lean towards your perspective on the kind of like sophisticated agnosticism about the, that the unborn child in that 
I agree that deliberately introducing death and seeking to destroy them is 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 immoral would be wrong. But at the same time, I don't think you can say with absolute certainty that there is no difference apart from in size between a three-day-old fertilized embryo that's suspended in liquid nitrogen and a kicking, screaming, pooing, feeding <laughs> four-day-old human baby. I just I just don't think in God's eyes or in our eyes, those two beings are complete moral equivalents. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have a a duty towards or care that is greater towards members of the kind of human family, which are, uh, I don't know what the language is, you know, more fulfilled, more, 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 more fruit, close to fruitfulness, more, you know, more the kind of human beings that they were always meant to be, even if, mm. as we acknowledge, not completing their journey yet, mm. um, uh, is my be- very sketchy answer. But it's a great question and it exposes a lot of maybe some of the, f- the holes in some of our thinking on this side of the debate. Yeah, and, and, you know, to be honest, I really struggled uh, when when confronted with this in public and, and out of out of the blue. I've since had the opportunity to reflect about it, and I think there's a very important point, which I wish I <laughs> had made at the time in the debate, and that is this. Why are there babies in the neonatal unit answer well because people have been having babies the normal way and it turned out that they were really sick and they needed proper intensive care and and we we were stepped in and we were doing the best to keep them alive okay why are the 5,000 embryos in the fertility lab because normally human embryos appear one by one and they remain invisible within the fallopian tube they're never seen, they're never known about. The mother doesn't even know they're there until they implant. They're a completely hidden part. Is it possible that this actually is part of the wonderful mystery of God's design? Why are the 5,000 in the fertility clinic? Answer, this is an artifact of technology. Uh, a vast amount of very uh, sophisticated technology has been used uh, to create all these embryos and store them in liquid nitrogen. They're an artifact, a technological artifact. That's not to say they have no meaning or value or significance, but they are deeply ambiguous because they've been created by vast amounts of technology in a very, a very, in a way that's completely against God's original creation order. And so inevitably that changes the way we think about them. We, we can't normally, I mean, how would it be possible that in un, in unnormally 5,000 embryonic human lives would all be threatened simultaneously? You know, the mother had, it just so happened that 5,000 mothers had just conceived and unknown to themselves, they were all pregnant with the tiny little embryo in the Philippian tube. I mean, it wouldn't happen. So, so this is an artifact, the entire creation of this moral problem well it is a bit like a trolley problem as you say it's something exceedingly artificial and atypical and therefore the instinct to look after these imperiled newborn babies that are not products of artifact that were born the normal way but just were sick and needed special care i think my moral intuition to put them first is entirely justifiable and this links back to what you said a while ago when talking about kind of the status of that, you know, day old fertilized egg, which is that for almost all of human existence until 40 to 50 years ago, what was going on inside our bodies was deeply and utterly mysterious. It was quite literally veiled beneath mm. layers of skin and, and muscle and organs. And we had no idea. And And you see throughout history, you know, human beings... Come up, came up with an extraordinary range of suggestions about how, what was going on when, when you know, a man and woman had sex and nine months later a baby arrived and they were all quite way off. And it's, and in some ways, you know, we kind of revel in the insight that ultrasound and modern science technology has given us to see, to peel back the layers of skin, as it were, and and see what's going on. But that is also, we, maybe we've deluded ourselves that we should have a similar kind of moral clarity as our technological scientific clarity has, but actually, as you, as you suggested, the Bible is, doesn't give us clear and simple answers as to 
you know the the moral status of the embryo or the fetus and and maybe we shouldn't be so naive or so arrogant to believe that just because we can ultrasound in and see what you know that you know what's going on after a few days doesn't mean that we should presume to be able to determine with absolute moral clarity some philosophical questions as well and that actually we're all we're supposed to we were never supposed to have this kind of godlike bird's eye view but mm. instead kind of submit to the mystery and the the unknowns absolutely and and i think perhaps the final thing i'd like to flag up is the is the process of embryo adoption um which is unusual in the uk but is definitely happening in the us which is where christian couples offer to adopt an embryo that if was for whatever reason unwanted sitting in liquid nitrogen somewhere and uh the embryo or embryos are are defrosted and then implanted with the consent of whoever created the embryos are then implanted into the adoptee's mother's womb and again this is not completely straightforward there are ethical issues and concerns about that but nonetheless it's definitely an option which some Christians have felt is a really positive way of responding mm. to these issues. Yeah, really interesting. And as you say, not not simple and raises questions we've talked about in many podcasts about identity and status and separating of children from their biological parents and all that complicated factor. But yeah, really interesting. And, and I would say kind of positive, redemptive effort to kind of grapple with some of the unintended consequences of modern technology. Before we move on, we must stress the kind of this actually grew out of our egg freezing episode and so we've all been talking about kind of surplus embryos fertilized embryos but actually to be strictly accurate when when women have eggs frozen these are unfertilized eggs so so what is actually happening is they will do very similar to to IVF they will stimulate kind of hyper ovulation harvest um as many eggs as possible upwards of dozens in some cases but these are not then fertilized and frozen. They are frozen without any sperm coming near them. And the theory is, is that down the line, when the woman is has a partner, then they can use this as yet un, unknown partner's sperm to, to fertilize them or potentially donor sperm. Does that change the moral calculus when these are not fertilized? These are just eggs. That so all we're doing is moving the eggs from inside the ovaries where they have been since birth, as it turns out, to liquid nitrogen in a lab somewhere. Yeah, well, I think I and, and I think many other people believe that does change the moral calculus quite significantly because it's clear that we're not talking about embryonic humans. We, we're talking about human eggs and that fundamentally, is there any difference between the eggs and sperm? Uh, we wouldn't believe in general that they had a unique moral status to be protected under all circumstances we we just wouldn't accord them the same moral status that doesn't mean that there aren't ethical problems because the question is should you donate your eggs hmm. um so some clinics in order to persuade people to uh because there's a huge shortage of donor eggs uh in in the ivf clinics and so one scheme is that uh, we'll agree to freeze your eggs at cut price if you agree to donate some of them to another couple mm. and and so again you've got ethical dilemmas there would you want to donate your eggs uh according to in the uk the child if a child was conceived through your donor eggs when aged 18 they would have the right to be informed as to who had donated the eggs and could come and knock on <laughs> your door and how would you feel if you'd been trying to have ivf and it had completely failed with your partner or husband, but actually the person you gave the donor eggs to was successful. And so you've now got this sort of half, half sibling, hmm. um, I mean, half child, you know, half daughter, yeah. son, um, who was, who had been created with somebody else's sperm. <laughs> I mean, you can just see the yeah huge complexities and, and challenges there, can't you? Yeah, massively. And, you know, I, I mean, I would agree with you instinctively, an unfertilized egg is, is clearly not a kind of separate moral category to a human being, but at the same to the to the mother in the way that a fertilized egg probably is. But at the same time, it's not the same as like, you know, 
clipping your fingernails and freezing them right those fingernails are just some cells from my body it doesn't really matter what happens to them clearly eggs even the ones that don't get fertilized i think we do need to be think a bit more deeply and a bit more carefully about how we handle this particular part of the human body as opposed to any other they're not they're not just like any other cells no that's right and we're certainly donating them i mean donating blood is is something you know that that is that is done with and that by and large has very few ethical concerns provided it's done to a high standard whereas donating eggs is a completely different um a, a different activity because of the significance of human eggs and because any child who's born as a result of that is inevitably going to be genetically related just before we end we should just move on to the second half of paul's excellent question which has prompted very interesting conversation um uh, i'll just read it out again because it was right at the start um paul goes on to say there doesn't seem to be much interest in birth control pills or apparatus it seems we have inadequate ones but no one is willing to put the money and the research into a method that is closer to 100 percent and easy to use I think the government should encourage such research if the culture is leaning towards starting sex in your teens but not having babies until your late 20s, as we discussed in the original egg freezing episode. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think this, of course, is a huge frustration for public health doctors, officials, managers and so on because they simply cannot understand why when actually good contraceptive methods are freely available uh, for the entire reproductive population and sex education is given universally to children in secondary schools, they simply cannot understand why are there 200,000 plus abortions occurring every year, unwanted pregnancies. And is this because of contraceptive failure? Well, I think the honest answer is the majority of them are not. Um, if if you if you do if you carry out contraceptive activities with real attention to detail, in other words, you are absolutely obsessional about, for instance, if you're taking the contraceptive pill, about how you take it and making sure that you know if you become unwell, that you don't rely on it and take other methods and so on and all that in case you didn't absorb it properly in one day. If you're absolutely obsessional about how you take it, or similarly, if you're absolutely obsessional about how you use barrier methods, uh, actually the, the contraceptive uh, success rate quotes is remarkably high. I mean, um, it's not completely zero, but it's very small. Um, however, the vast majority of unwanted pregnancies happen because people, for whatever reason, don't use contraceptions mm -hmm. obsessionally. Often they don't use contraception at all. They're 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 you know they're having a one night stand. They weren't prepared. You know, I didn't think I was like too to much with to anybody. Drink. Had a bit too much to drink. You know, if I'd thought about it. Um, yeah. So actually, it's not. Um, the vast majority of unplanned and unwanted pregnancies are not because people would were really obsessionally careful about using contraception. It was it was often for other social, psychological, relational reasons. Hmm. And does that mean that the answer is there is there is no real benefit in a kind of renewed emphasis from the state or otherwise in contraception because we've already kind of maxed out the kind of um the the benefit that contraception can do in terms of it's freely available in nhs everyone is taught how to use it but clearly human beings being human beings will always you know mess it up and there will be still there will always be a kind of residual amount of unplanned pregnancies and so trying to invest more money and effort and research into contraception you know people often bang on about and there is genuine research going into the male pill um, you know, there are there is efforts to kind of broaden our portfolio of contraception, but you seem to be saying actually the real problem isn't really the technology that we have available, but it's the human beings who are trying to use it. Yes, I mean the most reliable form of contraception are the implantable mm. uh, hormones, which uh, are just put under the skin and which last for weeks, if not months, at a time, years. and which are really you have very ones effective. That last years, implants can go to three to five years now. So. Um, you know that you don't have to remember to do anything you don't have to um 
But interestingly, again, um, that doesn't seem to be the problem. I, I think. So the argument is the, the the answer is not a technical answer of just let's improve contraceptions. It's much more about a psychological relational uh, answer. Unfortunately, I think. It is the case that a significant number of people are using a liberal abortion policy, which doesn't cost anything, which can be done just by ringing a number and getting some tablets and it's all gone and get on with your life. They're using it as a kind of safety blanket. I don't need to be too careful. I don't need to worry about the one night stand because I can always get an abortion. And and, and this is an unintended consequence about... Uh, it, it, it's almost encouraging people to be irresponsible. Is that a bit of a trope, risks. though? Is that actually true? Do we have evidence that's true? Because, I mean, I think you hear that a lot, and it seems to make sense. But at the same time, when you read stories of women who have abortions, women who have no kind of Christian convictions or sense that this is a moral thing to do, I'm always struck by the seriousness with which they they believe what they you know it's quite rare to come across people openly saying yeah i had an abortion it was no big deal it was just basically a more complicated morning after pill i move on with my life i i don't actually think you get that much hint that in wider culture that people are being flippant and casual about using abortion as a form of extended contraception yeah i mean very difficult and i certainly don't want to imply that there's a massive number of people are being irresponsible but you have to point out that basically there's just a huge silence there are, mm. you know, if if there are two hundred and thirty thousand, even more, even two hundred and fifty thousand, we don't know the latest numbers. It's it's possible that it's gone as high as three hundred thousand abortions last year, yeah. and yet, how many stories do we hear? A tiny, tiny, tiny protect uh, minority of ever these stories. I think there's just a huge silence. But I can't think of another. Why else would? the rate of unplanned pregnancy suddenly rocket um, if it isn't that people, this is coinciding with the pills by post. Yeah. The development of pills by post. What other factors could conceivably have led to a dramatic increase in the number of unplanned pregnancies? I mean, it could be that it's, these are so-called deaths of despair that people but but if you if you feel there's no hope for the future, why are you taking the possibility of getting pregnant? Um, so mm. I I I don't know. I think I think we desperately need to hear those genuine, authentic stories of people who are having abortions, and to ask them gently and non-judgmentally. You know why is it happening? But I mm. I think even if not at a very conscious level, the knowledge that a liberal and free abortion is available may change your behavior when you're on the one night stand and you remember that you haven't taken any contraception. It's possible. It's certainly possible. I think just a last thought on the contraception question, you know, Christians again have very different views on contraception and, you know, famously Catholic traditions are very hostile and that was true of, of Protestants until the kind of 20th century when there was a big sea change of views and, and now the vast majority of kind of evangelical Protestant Christians would be quite relaxed about married couples using contraception to kind of control their fertility. And, you know, I'm not going to be a hypocrite here. You know, <laughs> I've used contraception in the past. Um, I do think, however, that because that that there is a maybe, a, again, a, an absence, a failure to really lean in and think critically and carefully about the morals of this, and I think we need to resist any kind of ethic which says, mm, here's an interesting way in which human behavior is cutting against the grain of how we have been created. In this example, having sex in your teens, but not wanting children until you're 30. And therefore we just say, right, here's a technological solution and we'll carry on, you know, which, which I think is true of the egg freezing thing, which is an, a technological solution to the problem. But I think equally, we have to recognize that widespread contraception is a technological solution to the quote unquote problem, which is that, you know, even married Christian couples would like to have sex more often than they'd like to have children, even though God's design was that having sex and having children should broadly go together. Now, I'm not saying that I am anti-contraceptional, that all Christians should throw their pills away, but I just would caution against 
reflexively saying the solution here is going to be the technology of contraception, making it more available, more effective, when actually I think we need to do a bit more of the kind of theological work about what does it mean to kind of live against the grain of our created order? How do we feel about that before just jumping to a technological quick fix? Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy with that, but I just want to point out there's a complete difference between what we would say to a Christian couple who are just getting married and who are starting to ask the question about their sex life and their plans for children and so on. And I think there is definitely a sea change in attitudes compared to what there were 20, 30 years ago in that there's a greater awareness amongst many Protestant Christians to think more cautiously about contraceptives and to think about this separation of making love and making babies and so on. Um, That's one thing. Uh, The second thing is to encourage contraception in a promiscuous culture, whether that's appropriate or not. And again, Christians have differed on this. Um, The argument in favour, particularly for doctors, for instance, prescribing contraceptions, if if their patient is a young uh, single girl who they know has told them that they're going to be promiscuous Uh, is it better to ensure that that uh, person has contraception so is less likely to bring an unwanted baby into the world or uh, or should we say no you're not married we don't think uh, it's right to give you contraception you just shouldn't have sex and I think that many doctors have come to the conclusion that actually using contraception in this uh, context is a form of harm minimization it is yes it's not ideal it's not perfect the best thing is if she changes her lifestyle completely and, and abstains from sex but since it's very likely and she's telling us she's not going to do that then minimizing the potential harm by giving her contraception is better than dealing with all the unplanned pregnancy and the fallout that would happen because of that and uh, some listeners may recall this was this precise thing was a kind of topic of a of a short lived culture war in the US in particular in the early 2000s because uh, when George W Bush came to power there was a big push from kind of evangelical evangelically led about switching public health programming around teen pregnancy towards abstinence messaging as opposed to contraceptive messaging which had been the kind of predominant method and there was lots of kind of competing studies about how effective or not teaching teenagers about abstinence as a form of um, stopping unplanned pregnancies. And um, it, after a while, I think people basically went back to contraception. Um, b- people might differ on on how effective they think abstinence is. But yeah, this is clearly something that people have been arguing about for a while. And Christians have, some Christians have taken the view that, you know, we collude with the culture if we, if we allow contraception to be too f- easily available and it kind of lets young people get away with with sexual ethics that we disapprove of but as you say i think i lean towards the harm minimization angle myself fundamentally human beings in all cultures in all times have had a lot more sex than we should be having (laughs) and that's not going to change anytime soon and i think it is wise to in the conduct in the light of that to be trying to minimize uh, you know 16 year olds getting pregnant when they don't want to be and on that cheery note, we should probably draw this sprawling episode to a close. Yeah. Uh, thanks for going on this journey with us. Thanks very much to Paul for your excellent couple of questions that prompted this conversation and everyone else who's been sending in interesting feedback and thoughts about the egg freezing episode. As I mentioned at the start, please do keep sending your questions in, molads at premier.org.uk. Um, and we'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, bye-bye. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.